because we've been really comfortable saying, oh, they're just people are hard. It's the we they're the weakest link. And then we move on like that. And that's honestly an excuse uh, that that I think as long as we continue making ourselves comfortable with that excuse, we're going to constantly get hacked and Verizon data report will year after year have banners that say 85% of all of our breaches are due to the human element. You've heard this one before. Humans are the weakest link. And probably this one too. Security is everyone's responsibility. These ideas are taken as self-evident truths in cybersecurity today, to the point of being platitudes. But how true are they? And is relying on these ideas as truths making us any safer? The way we work and the information systems that connect and enable that work have undergone transformational and revolutionary changes. Those facts should be enough to merit a re-examination of old ideas. Now, add to those changes a resurgence in social engineering, one of cybersecurity's oldest threat vectors, and engaging with these ideas around human end-users and responsibilities at a deeper level, indeed interrogating them, is now essential. Today's guest is Masha Sadova, president and co-founder of Elevate Security. I wanted to talk to her about how she confronts these ideas and how she thinks about measuring and mitigating human risk. Masha Sadova, welcome to First Watch. Thanks so much for having me, George. Great to be here. So I want to start with something you wrote recently. Um, you were positioning the phrase, quote, people are the weakest link, unquote, as a myth. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and I imagine we'll kind of spend some time here with this idea. But I think what piqued my interest was the truth that you were offering in contrast to that, which is that human risk is not measured or managed on par with other security risks. And intuitively, that sounds, yes, I agree with that, sounds right. But, and it's just 13 words, but there's, I think, a lot to unpack there. Um, so, so I want to dig in piece by piece. So I want to give you some space to elaborate on what you consider human risk first. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So I define human risk as all elements of um, employee actions, behaviors that can potentially lead to compromise in our organizations. And there's all, it's also the combinations of things that we're doing to manage that risk. So it's someone's propensity to click on a phishing link plus their ability to and, and likelihood to use MFA, right? So collectively, when you put that together, it's how risky is an individual's action as it relates to my ability to keep my organization safe and secure? And human risk, um, we we have to date as an industry thought thought about it quite narrowly. It's usually phishing. Even the example mm -hmm. I brought up was phishing, but there's actually quite a few behaviors that go go into it, and that we we should consider in the in the full body of of, of this risk, and that's someone's. Um, uh, how they handle sensitive data, how mm -hmm. they browse on websites, how they, how often they try to download and or execute malware, how they handle credentials, um, how the, how often they report their device security posture. Do they hit snooze on patching reminders like it's a gym mm -hmm. notification or, or is it something <laughs> that they're on top of? All of these components ultimately make an, an individual 
either more likely and susceptible uh, to an attack or much more resilient. And so human risk, as I think about this, is the ability for us to start quantifying. We're going to get into this in a little bit, uh, I'm sure. But it's it's a field of thinking about um, how the the element of risk introduced by people in our organizations. Okay. Yeah. And I, I agree with this um, dissension with the weakest link uh, term, not so much because it's, I think, rather a dim view of your fellow coworkers, um, but also because uh, some of the things that I think people fall for, we as security professionals have one level of understanding and maybe there's less empathy with how distracted the workforce is or um, you know what pressure they're feeling to deliver. And so, yes, I got to pay this invoice that somebody has sent me right away. Um, and that the human mind is not necessarily evolved to see these things. We're evolved to be collaborative and also not hyper suspicious uh, of our quote unquote fellow coworkers, even if it's an impersonation. Um, so I, yeah, I, I do want to center now on the measurement part of that, because I think that's very key there. So when you're saying human risk is not measured on par, let's, let's get into that. Before we move into measurement, I, I, a few words on the weakest link aspect of it. I think it has just been a very comfortable excuse for mm -hmm. us as an industry to say, well, people are the weakest link and use that as a reason to not invest, not think about the space critically. We've just basically written this off as, you know, people are hard, so we shouldn't actually meaningfully start addressing <laughs> this as, as a layer of our defense. And we just move on. We accept it as a status quo mm -hmm. when in fact it should be the exact opposite. It should be a rallying cry. It should be when people think about how we defend our organizations and defense in depth, the fact that, that we are okay having a level of vulnerability in the human element and just saying it's hard. So we're just not going to focus on it. It feels, um, feels just like an excuse. Uh, and yeah, I think the human element is absolutely the hardest part of security to, to tackle because you can't just patch a human and then move on, but that doesn't mean it's not solvable and it is not, uh, and we can't make meaningful progress, but it, it, we are so dismally behind in our ability to, uh, as I was saying earlier, measure and manage this risk because we've been really comfortable saying, oh, they're just people are hard. So we they're the weakest link. And then we move on like that. And that's honestly an excuse uh, that that I think as long as we continue making ourselves comfortable with that excuse, we're going to constantly get hacked and Verizon data report will year after year have banners that say 85% of all of our breaches are due to the human element. And we'll just say, well, that's the way it is. And that's, and that's entirely not the way we'd solve any other aspects of security, right? We dive into to challenges, which is one of my favorite things about being a security professional, right? We, we really do tackle, you know, innovative attacks head on, except for the space, which, uh, which is mind boggling to me. And it is paradoxical and perplexing when you think about how complex other things are 
you know, like we lifted everything from on-prem servers into cloud. We invented entirely new disciplines in security, yeah. cloud architects, this, that, yeah. and the other. And people uh, expound uh, ad infinitum about how complex and the technical skills required. And yet this one thing, hands-on keys, is just, or just shrug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, the, and then our policies around this, like when we do compliance checks, the standards that we're held accountable to are 20 years old. That mm -hmm. is before the advent of iPhones, right? Like how, yeah. how is that the, the, the area that like, how is that the, the bar we hold ourselves accountable to? So. I'm um, glad you bring that up. I have been thinking a lot recently of the historical background to a lot of this stuff, right? So, you know, the typical joke security awareness training program is, you know, the video that you can run on your second monitor while you're busy doing your real right. work. Right. Okay, I've, I've passed through this, I've taken the quiz, I've completed it. But a lot of that training is, as you say, predicated on inbound email, right? Like when you receive an email, look for this, do that, whatever. Um, and we can inject headers or whatever. But again, email is only one way that we work. And I would argue in the last two years that kind of got entirely upended. Um, mm -hmm. There's, I've never seen a lot of training around like somebody sends you something in Slack and there's a lot of implicit trust in yeah. Slack because I just assume this is my coworker, not an outbound individual trying to reach yeah. to me. But I, you bring up the point about you know, how, how is that keeping up if the understanding of the way we work is completely totally changed. changed? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, hacks evolve and phishing is still an easy way to get through inboxes, but Uber was breached through a well, WhatsApp chat right. notification, right? And that, that hasn't been covered in most training. So, um, yeah. Um, and the thing is back to the question you asked a few minutes ago around the measurement aspect of it and you know what are we looking into and what are we uh, how do we assess our risk and and what are the avenues mm -hmm. um the, i think the very first foundational piece to think about this is we use risk management principles in most other areas of security and the mm -hmm. idea here is that not all risk is created equal and if we find areas of risk that are of greater concern greater severity we focus our extra time and attention on that and because security has you know a resource problem and there's a lot of we don't have enough head count and mm -hmm. enough hours in the day to tackle the problems we have to prioritize and we use the risk management principles of, you know likelihood times probability etc uh, to be able to understand you know what what is our p0 or you know and what can we can we forget uh, and for another day but we don't have that kind of understanding as it relates to user risk or human risk. Mm -hmm. uh, we, for us, it's again, one size fits all. They're just the workforce. And so the very first thing, if we're going to think about tackling this problem is thinking about how do we start breaking this up so we can quantify these individual risk levels. And it's not that we, I feel like we anecdotally have an understanding that, I mean, some people get security, some people don't and are a little mm -hmm. bit more careless. Um, we, we've been quite flippant say, oh, you know, dumb users and not, but if we just think about that, people are created differently and there's people who have excellent security skills, they're probably on the security team and there are right. people who are probably great salespeople, um, really great engineers. And we as an organizations didn't hire them to be excellent security people and they provide incredible value to our business, which is ultimately what we're all here 
for the end of the day is to, to have thriving businesses, but they may not be excellent in security. And it's not right of us to expect that everyone be a security superstar. But if we acknowledge that people fall in different places on the security risk bell curve, if you will, there's people who are great and require a lot less intervention on our side. And there are people who are highly risky. And I, I'm not suggesting that we use firing for them because they provide other value. Right. So those are people who, who require a different type of intervention. Um, and I use the word intervention very intentionally because it's not always training, which is what we've been stuck on mm -hmm. for a long time. There are a lot of tools at our disposal and there's a lot more tools we can come to invent if we focus on it like in this perspective. Um, but if we can quantify it, we start actually focusing and applying resources appropriately uh, to where the risk level actually lies. Yeah, that's uh, that brings us to the other myth worth dissecting and want to dig in here too. Um, that security is everyone's responsibility, and I I imagine we might catch a little bit of flack for this one, but you know it's worth engaging these ideas because they achieve the level of platitude to the point of being trite. And so we need to interrogate them a little bit. So as you said, you you also wrote, you know, we can't expect designers, engineers, and sales folks to get security as we do. That's our job. And you talked about a little bit about that. And I like that you position it as, you know, the value that they bring to the company is something else. If they are deficient in this, that's not, you know, summary firing material. Um, but I want to talk here about you know if we take that understanding to heart and we and we scratch the everyone's responsibility platitude and try to dig in you know what does that mean practically for practitioners and their security strategies yeah i was i when i when i posted this on linkedin i was surprised as to the extent to which i struck a, a nerve uh, for us and didn't realize how many individuals have this as a core belief and to your point mm. i think it's really worth analyzing i think we equate securities everyone's responsibility as i meant to as uh, um it would be great if everyone were more secure and i to be clear, I agree with that. I think if people made less security mistakes, we would be in a much better state. And in general, there's less cleanup, there's less security debt. And I'm all for that, right? However, I think if we design our systems, hoping for that to be the case, we are setting ourselves and we're designing for guaranteed failure. Because the one thing we absolutely know to be true is that human beings are fallible. Mm -hmm. And we're mere mortals and we will at some point make mistakes, no matter how good we are. I know some of the best security practitioners have also fallen for phishing attacks. And my favorite story is when I've uh, like uh, my team who wrote this phishing email in a simulated phishing environment fell for one of our own attacks. We were like, it's incredible. Like sometimes <laughs> you just you just can't help but be human. Right. And. I think acknowledging that aspect of it is so critical. And so when we say security is everyone's responsibility, we don't leave room for help for understanding that they will fail. Right. We, we put it on individuals and saying you need to you need to hold up to this level of posture in order for us to be safe. Right. I need you to be doing these things. And yes, I think we need to drive for that outcome and we need to support our engineers for to introduce less risky code. And I do think it's important for individuals to not click on phishing links and help create programs around that. And 
at the same time, we should also plan systems for their failure. Uh, and we should have a safety net for, for people to know that they're not going to take down the company <laughs> if they right. make a mistake. Right. And, and, um, by doing that, by understanding that there's certain people who are going to make more mistakes than others, what, what is, how can we meet them halfway there with the tools that we have in security? So I'll give you a very tactical example of how this shows up. We say security is everyone's responsibility. Don't browse to, to stupid sites, cut it out. Right. That if, if we, if we don't explore this any further, that's the end, right? It becomes a platitude and we just tell people thou shalt. If we understand some people really just can't help themselves and end up in some weird places on the internet, you know, like let's talk about deploying some web isolation browsing environments for them. Or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we, we quarantine their to trusted sites um, or the on phishing, for example. Um, if we meet our human fallibility halfway, for example, I know I make far stupider decisions when I'm hungry. So <laughs> I would love my email system to integrate with my calendar to know when I have lunch and dinner times and to maybe only deliver email from trusted senders after I've had lunch, for example, or if I know I'm at a happy hour, right? Make sure all external senders come in with flashing red lights because uh, I have a lot less critical thinking ability at that time. So how do we design systems? And I'm asking us to think much deeper and more broadly mm-hmm. than we ever have around the space. Because um, when we put it on the individual, we uh, absolve ourselves of the opportunity of thinking about, hey, you know, how do we make this a safer place uh, for people to be a little bit, to, to make mistakes um, and it not cause the end of the world for us? Yeah, I think this kind of dovetails with a lot of other discussions I see outside of security circles around particularization, right? Moving away from the one size fits all mm-hmm. in terms of, I see a lot about management styles, right? You have some employees that respond to feedback this way. Some, and and we talk about that through business processes. Um, we talk about some people really getting a lot out of remote work, others not. And there's a lot of time and energy spent there. But I think what you're saying here is that level of customization and nuance is also merited in how we structure security for the organization. Because yes, to your point, anyone in InfoSec getting random emails has a different response than someone in accounts payable who typically gets one kind of email, which is, this is the invoice to pay. Right. And um, yeah, I think that's, Valuable, but I guess I want to present the counterfactual and take the other side, which is would that level of customization, would adding a layer of human risk measurement, is that, you know, yet more noise in the system? Is it yet one more thing, one more new thing to manage? Like, how do we get through the change management required? Because what you're proposing, I think, is is pretty substantial in terms of our thinking. But mm-hmm. I think this is the pushback we always get when we're trying to present something new is like, well, you know, that would take me like five years to re-engineer this, that, and the other. So what what would you say to that argument? Yeah. So I think there's something we can do today. And there's something that I think is a, is a nice, you know, flying car, um, self-driving <laughs> car version of it. I'll start with the self-driving car because, because we uh, version of it, because we, we were just talking about this a little bit. You know, we've done a lot of 
work in other spaces like marketing and advertising around knowing context of, for an individual on hyper-personalization, we have a lot of technology, even with AI, right? Mm -hmm. What I'm suggesting in security and a, a place where we can move towards in the space is applying some of the really interesting advancements we've had in other disciplines, in psychology and behavioral science, like I was just mentioning, understanding how we relate to hunger and decision-making, um, and contextual information as as we have in advertising and marketing and applying it to security as as a way of up leveling how we help people stay secure. Um, and I think that's awesome future work that can happen. I don't think that's something that organizations are going to be doing right. uh, anytime soon. But um, I just pulled that, I put that out there because I think we have we're stuck in it needs to be a funny video. And the funnier the video, the more secure I am like that we're, we're in this weird loop of uh, like we can't think beyond beyond where, where we, we are right now so I offer that just sort of as a um, interesting uh, thought experiment and also could because I think we as security people can bring in a lot of expertise from other industries to start uh, to start tackling some of our problems in the space because um, understanding individual actions uh, has a lot of um, a lot of applications in other industries that we can learn from. So that's the self-driving car equivalent of it. But now like we're going to bring this a little bit in towards, uh, towards what you can do tomorrow. The best, the, the, the awesome thing about this whole, whole situation is first of all, I can guarantee that if you have like a compliance checkbox awareness program, you are doing almost nothing in actually reducing your vulnerability mm -hmm. level to this. And so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a change, but my, I would argue uh, it needs to change because you are spending the majority of your time and dollars being security janitors right now, cleaning up after all these user risks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and change is critical if you if you don't want to continue burning out your team and spending millions of dollars on on tools that are focused on uh, cleanup as opposed to actually intelligent. Uh, and proactive approach around this because uh, otherwise we're always going to be behind. So that's, that's just the, the call to action around. Yeah, it's going to, it's a, it's a change, but it's, it, it, what you're doing right now is almost guaranteed not, not working. Um, but the sort of next step, what can you do about this? The majority of individuals and in, and in even a semi-mature organization already have the data sets to start understanding risk, risk individuals. Everything I was talking mm -hmm. about human risk do people click on links? Do they browse to sites? Do they download malware? Do they try to mismanage um, sensitive data? All of those exist in logs in your SIM or from your tools and technologies that you've already deployed. They're just, the data sets are just sitting there useless because uh, we only use it as, oh, is there an incident do we have to clean up? But, but if an individual tries to download malware but doesn't execute on it, that's that's Perfect a signal for understanding. That's that's a signal. Well, you have all the signals you need. Employees are leaving uh, telemetry around their risk um, levels all the time. When they log in and interact with technology, that is their thumbprint around how they make decisions. And we can understand that um, using the things you've already deployed. It's just actually taking the time to pull that together into a centralized place and then start start historically logging that. And you can do that. I mean, there's Excel spreadsheets plus Tableau and an analyst time. There are tools out there that can absolutely do this. Uh, full disclosure, Elevate Security is one of those uh, that, that can do that. But um, 
the data already exists in environments. It's what you do with the data that that starts um, that starts changing the game. And once you can quantify that risk level, as we've done with our how we've done vulnerability management mm-hmm. and how we do incident triage, then you can start thinking about you know how do I want to handle people who fall in different buckets and low, medium, high. And what what kind of policy should I put in place? Who needs greater controls and who needs less, for example. Uh, And uh, I think that there's, um, uh, it seems a lot more foreign than, uh, than it actually is, mostly because a lot of the, a lot of the data is already there. Yeah. And I want to really applaud the call for more disciplines or interdisciplinary thinking. I think some of the things we've touched on here, you know, are essentially like organizational psychology, you know, uh, behavioral psychology. And I, this comes to mind because, and the listeners will have to forgive me, I keep invoking this statistic, but, you know, last year, these uh, researchers published in the Harvard Business Review that the average employee toggles between applications 1200 times per day. You know, your, your mind is a minefield of multi-tab browsers and alt tab, right? You're just constantly switching. And there's a cognitive cost to that in terms of awareness, in terms of, you know, the way we work has changed. And I think in the pandemic, it was like, oh, get Slack, get Teams so people can work remotely. And that was sort of, but I think we're catching up to like, what is the reality that that does to the workforce? Like you said, you're you're out and you get an email on your phone where you can't see in the header as closely as you can at work. You know, I just think the legacy thinking of, you know, LAN network architecture is still pervading like how we think about protecting an organization. It's still like, here's the data system, here's the network, here's the moat that I'm digging around it. And, and you know, people say like, there is no perimeter, we're all in the cloud. I still think that it's good to say that, but I, th- I don't know that the security strategies are necessarily jiving with that. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a bit of a tangent. I've been doing a little bit of uh, reading a book called Deep Work around um, how yeah. do we create and isolate time and energy to actually be able to create meaningful work. And one of the biggest uh, detractors for that is exactly what you said, a concept called um, mental residue. And Mm -hmm. and studies have shown that when you toggle between tasks, as much as 20% of your mental capacity is still left on the task you just left, which means the more you do this and and there's, it lasts for a certain period of time and the more you toggle, you just leave this long trail of your mental capacity behind you in, in each of the tasks that you're doing. Uh, and as it relates to security, like understanding that that's the way people work now. Um, and when you have a very critical thinking moment, like, hey, is this malicious email Mm -hmm. am i you could just slow it down slow Slow it down down. yeah exactly and i'm actually this is this is where learning uh through other kinds of disciplines is really interesting in behavioral science there's a concept called system one and system two thinking and system Mm -hmm. one is the 
I'm hungry. What do I want to eat for lunch? It's kind of a quick gut, gut decision. It's instinctual. And system two is the part of your brain that decides what college you should go to, right? It's, yeah. it's there's the pros versus cons. And system two requires a lot more energy and capacity, and you have to slow it down to be able to do this. And uh, our brains and our psychology and are, are wired to make more system one decisions. It's less resource intensive. And so we tried to make as many shortcuts. And that's exactly why um, people fall for attacks because it's it becomes instinctual. It's a, I don't want to slow down. My brain's not designed to slow down to make critical thinking like that because again, it's, it's harder by design. Uh, and so if I can make a knee jerk reaction around this, I will. And which is exactly where all elements of social engineering come in. And if, bringing it back to the very point that you were saying, we have so many learnings about how we make decisions, how we handle risk decisions, but in general, how do we make hard decisions as human beings in many other disciplines? And security, in my experience, does not play well with others. Um, we, we just have tons of courses around, you know, how to be a better executive with other <laughs> with other executives, how to get business buy-in. But, you know, that's that's security out. But um uh, I think that there's an interesting call to action around um, new ideas in. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can can share some of the challenges that we are having, human element, human risk being probably the one that has most interesting intersections with other disciplines, I think we would get some really interesting and out of the box ideas that uh, our security minded brains uh, maybe aren't uh, aren't thinking about right now, because, again, we're great at security. We may not be great at thinking about other other aspects of psychology. And so um, not only does this solve our human risk problem, it also solves some of our headcount and our hiring problems. Right. And we also get some interesting diversity of thought and backgrounds. There's it's a there's multiple wins across the board here. Yeah, I think sometimes that social engineers must uh, just have Daniel Kahneman's books on their back bookshelf for uh, just understanding human psychology. So yeah, and, and as an aside, I once heard a CISO in the context of talking about diversity of skill set, say that uh, his best SOC analyst was actually a, a history mm -hmm. student because that person had been trained to find patterns in very tiny, quote unquote, packets of historical information. Um, yeah. But yeah, you bring up a good point. I, I want to turn now uh, as we round the corner to the end here in your transition from practitioner to founder. So I'm curious to know what was the light bulb moment? What was the, you know, I'm, I'm sort of coming up against this problem and, you know, there's a difference between I'm just going to try to solve this problem here versus I, I kind of want to make a leap and create something new. And I'm curious about that journey. Yeah. Yeah. So I left my comfortable day job as an executive at Salesforce to start the Elevate Security um, because this was a problem I, uh, I I have to solve. Uh, I also thought solving it in the form of a uh, putting a product out is would be the best sum of my experience and knowledge and saying, you know, here are the playbooks and here's the lessons learned that I've pulled together and you can hit play, uh, which is so much better than, you know, here's a white paper on best practices. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, and, and I thought it was, is the most impactful way to change the industry. Um, a couple of things that have really surprised me along the way. Um, and it's a little bit of, it was a little bit of sad. I, I think there's a lot of 
there isn't a CISO that I have talked to that doesn't tell me that, you know, user risk, human risk isn't a problem. It's ubiquitously agreed that we haven't really solved this problem as an industry. Mm -hmm. Many organizations that, you know, there's, there's a long way that I can still go in the space. And at the same time, they'll say, this is not my top three priority. Um, And our ability to Mm -hmm. solve for the now um, like the the thing that's on fire now versus a little bit of long-term thinking to help put and make sure the next fire doesn't start um, is a challenge that I ran into very often at the beginning of, of, of this, of me having these conversations. Um, and I'll give you an example. Like I, yeah. Can you help me with the detection? Can you help me with the cleanup? Uh, and I was like, and I said, I can help you make sure that doesn't happen again. And I was like, yeah, I know. Can you help me with the cleanup? Um, so mm. I'd rather spend my dollar on the cleanup. Um, and I see a, a lot, there's a, there's a subset of people who are really innovative and think about how do I prevent this whole wheel from happening again and the protection and learn from my incidents so that I can protect in the future. But still so much of our industry is focused on detection and response as core components of uh, how we how we secure our systems. Uh, And we focus on like the narrow bit of of cleanup uh, of like the thing that's that's hurting right now versus taking a more strategic look. Um, So that's a little bit. Do you think that's a byproduct of either? Let me think here, like budgetary cycles or trying to prove they know how to measure the wins. Like we, we did this, we put in this, we reduced response time from, you know, four hours to two hours. Therefore our ROI is, you know, is, is, is it just because the models are designed to measure one thing and, you know, this would require kind of investing and measuring on a different side of the equal sign. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of parts. Yeah. That's part of it is the ROI and the, and the budget aspect. Part of it is also, you know, long-term efficacy as some, some things take a little bit of time to, to, to create big change in, um, and to, to really innovate on and, um, you know, depending on an average tenure in a CISO's um, environment, right. right? Like maybe uh, maybe it's not the the quickest win, for example. Although honestly, I've seen I've seen organizations turn around quite quickly when they think about moving organiz like it, it seems. Let me clear. Let me clear. I feel it seems like the the it's a much harder challenge than it actually is. It feels like, oh my God, behavior change. That's going to take me a decade, and I'm not going to be <laughs> here for a decade. So I'm not going to. When in when in fact, you know, when you move from a one size fits all to an individualized approach, and again back to the point, like the data is already there. It's a mindset shift and getting people to to think about it in a different way. But um, once you have that kind of quantification. Um, it, it, the, the change, the the communication back to employees is a very different experience versus take this fun video and, uh, versus a, Hey, did you know you actually, um, click on phishing links three times more than the rest of your peer group and you browse to sites twice, twice as often as other people in your peer group. And as a following, we are doing this type of intervention. It's a very different experience. So because Mm -hmm. of that, I think, um, I think the changes are quite drastic and quickly, but it takes a while for people to understand 
uh, you know, that they, that there really is, it's a much, it's much more achievable than, than, um, than maybe that the, uh, the initial, uh, take of it might be. Right. It's achievable. I think that is a brilliant place to wrap things up. Masha Sudova, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. George, thank you so much for the conversation. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my special guest, Masha Sadova. To hear more interviews with cybersecurity leaders and more spotlight episodes on newcomers, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Mattia Safaletti and production help from Jamil Mafi. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong. Thank you.